Welcome to episode 7 of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I am here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So I'm going to read a familiar passage of scripture about the rich young man. Let's take a look at Mark 10, 17 through 23. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Are these scriptures saying that if you are wealthy, that it will be hard or difficult for you to enter into heaven? Yeah, that might be our immediate thought. Mm-hmm. But I would say, okay, how are they understanding wealth at this time? Right? Mm-hmm. Under the economy of the Old Testament, and so the word economy, they're not thinking about finances first and foremost, but I'm thinking like under the, the dispensation or the way in which God related to his people in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. how do they understand wealth? Right? So we know that God promised his people blessing, material, physical, securing blessing when they were obedient to God. Right. Right. And so an individual like this rich young man who kept all the laws, who had great wealth, had great resources, was perceived to be blessed by God. Mm-hmm. Right. If anyone is going to have eternal life, if anyone is going to enter the kingdom, if anyone is going to be saved, it's him. Mm-hmm. And if he can't be saved, who can be saved? Right. Right. So I think the point of this whole passage, especially comes out in verse 26, when Jesus has said to them, actually just go back to verse 24, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle mm-hmm. than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, we have you know, some who want to say, well, like there's this little door and like the camel would like mm-hmm. get down on its knees and slide through and the guy, like, no, it's like, this is impossible, right? Uh, Anton, can you put your van, you know, through the eye of a needle? <laughs> no, right? right? No, it's not saying, so it's an impossibility. And so the response of the disciples is, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Right. Like, that's what we need to take away. Like, nobody can be saved, Mm -hmm. right? The righteous person who appears to be blessed in every sort of way, who keeps the moral laws, doing all these good things, like, even he can't be saved, right? That's the point that is being taken. And so the point is, is ultimately all of us need to look to another to find our salvation. Right. Right. So the question then becomes, what is going to prevent us from looking to another? Right. If we have great resources, and if we have great love for our resources, if we have great fear of losing our resources, our finances, our wealth, well then, yeah, that could absolutely keep us from looking to Jesus. Mm-hmm. However, the person who doesn't have great resources or great wealth could also be hindered from looking to Jesus because they think if I follow him, then I can't have these things that I want, right? So it goes in both directions. But I do think, and we see in our culture, that there is a way in which materialism is a god of our age. Uh, we yep. have to fight against that, the security, the satisfaction, the comfort that that brings. Uh, the words of 1 Timothy 6 are very real for us. 
that the root of all evils is the love of money. It's not money, it's the love of money, mm -hmm. but when you have money, how easy it is to, to love that or to love what it does for you. And so I think it's, it, it does apply to us. It applies to every culture, every situation. But ultimately, the, the main point is getting, like nobody can be saved right. by their good works. Um, and even if they look like they've been blessed because of their good works, they too need Christ for their forgiveness of sins. Amen. In Mark 11, verses 15 through 19, Jesus cleanses the temple. Let's take a look at those scriptures. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. So I was struck by verse 17, where Jesus says it is written that his house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when I'm reading the Bible and I look at Isaiah 56 and 7, um, which reads, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For the house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Are these scriptures from the books of Mark and Isaiah letting us know that salvation through Christ is not only available to the Jews, but the Gentiles also? Yeah, and I think it's important to see that salvation uh, promised in the Old Testament to the people of Israel was mm. also for the nations. Right. Right. Before the law came, uh, kind of restricting the blessings to the people of Israel, what did it say to Abraham? Right. Uh, I will make you a blessing to be a blessing to the nations. Mm -hmm. right? All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So God's plan from the beginning was always to bless all the peoples. Right? But the way that he was going to do that was to choose one man and one family and from that one family to bring one seed, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. who's not just going to bring salvation to Israel, but who, starting with Israel, is going to bring salvation to all the nations. Mm. Right? So this is where in Romans 1.16, the gospel, right, it says, is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Which doesn't mean that the Jew is higher than the Gentile. It means that the gospel starts in Jerusalem. The Spirit is poured out in Jerusalem, the gospel comes to the people of Israel, and then it goes to the ends of the earth, right? right? Chronologically, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? One of the reasons why Jesus is so upset uh, about this is that they had turned the court of the Gentiles, place where the Gentiles would come, into a marketplace, giving no space to the Gentiles, mm. right? So the people who are to be a light to the world, a city on a hill, uh, are failing to do that. They're hiding that. They are, they are cutting off the space given to the Gentiles to come and to worship the one true God. Right. Right. And one of the things I've just been struck by, just reading through Genesis and thinking through these things recently, is the way that God's people in the Old Testament all the way through were always a mixed multitude. Mm -hmm. Right. You think about um, the 12 sons of of, I, of Israel, right? Coming from four different mothers, mm. you know, Rachel and Leah, but also their two concubines, their two servants, right? So, like, there's a mixture that's even there in the purest of the twelve, right? right? We often talk about just the purity of ethnic Israel, and yet that ethnicity is mixed from the beginning. Or, when the people of Israel are brought out from Egypt 
it says in Exodus 12 that a mixed multitude joined with That's them. Right. We don't know the number that is there, but we do know that in that very same chapter, in Exodus 12, we'll talk about it in a few weeks when we get there. Uh, the fact is, is that the people of God are identified not by their ethnic purity, but by their covenant faithfulness. They're circumcised in the flesh. And it says that the Gentiles, or those outside of Israel, can become Jews by means of circumcision, coming wow. into the covenant. Right. So something that I was shown this week that I'd never seen before was in Esther uh, chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, or God is coming to save the people of Israel who are there in the lands of the Medo-Persians. And what it says is just striking. It says, In every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country, so that's a Gentile country, declared themselves Jews. Wow, yeah. Right? Which doesn't mean that, you know, they got on Ancestry.com and mm -hmm. figured out a way to get back to um, Abraham. They declared themselves Jews by making, uh, by entering into the covenant that God gave to the people of Israel. Right, yeah. Right? So, it doesn't say this, but I mean, the way that you would declare yourself a Jew or to become a Jew is through circumcision. Mm. Right? And so, this physical circumcision which was there is the way in which people from outside of Israel would come into Israel which is why in Acts 15, the Jewish church is having to decide, what do we do with these Gentiles? Mm -hmm. Do they have to become Jews in order to become followers of Jesus? And of course the answer is no. Right. Because Jesus comes and he himself actually takes on the full circumcision. Right. He himself is circumcised in his death on the cross. That's the language of Colossians 2. Right. So he becomes the fulfillment of that. And those who have trusted in him will receive a purification of their sins and a, a cleansing of the heart by faith in him. Therefore, they don't need a cleansing of the flesh and circumcision, mm -hmm. but rather they've already received that by the Spirit. And this new covenant community then is made of Jew and Gentile united together in Christ. So. Amen. Back to the question with what's going on here. Yeah, uh, that God's purposes were always for all the nations uh, to find salvation in Christ. That's awesome. Mark 13 describes the things um, which are to come. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 6, Many will come in his name, leading people astray. In verse 9 through 11, he says, You, he tells them, um, will be persecuted. Christ says, brother will deliver brother unto death and children will rise against their parents. In these passages, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Was this something that was expected to happen in the day of the disciples or is this something that is supposed to happen in our day or both? Yeah, so I've got a, a blog that I've been kind of just working on to answer some of that question itself. Mm -hmm. I think Matthew 13 is one of the most challenging and perhaps misunderstood passages going on, right? Like, all of a sudden, we have this narrative in the Gospel of Mark, and then chapter 13 almost kind of steps out and gives this, this teaching of Jesus that's mm -hmm. like apocalyptic in nature. Yes. Right? So there is not just apocalyptic literature in Daniel and Revelation, but also here at this, um, you know, the discourse, the Olivet Discourse, right? So we saw it in Matthew 24, we see it again here in Mark 13. And the way I read it is to say this is actually preparing us for what's coming next. Mm -hmm. right? If we were to just take it out and we move from chapter 12 to 14 to 15, where are we going? Mm -hmm. We're going to the cross. Hey. Right? We're going in preparation for this radical, even cataclysmic event that is going to take place 
where the old covenant is going to be done away with and the new covenant is going to come by the means of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, like heaven and earth are going to change mm. because of what Christ is doing in his death and resurrection. We often don't think about it that way because so often we're so narrow in our thinking. Um, and rightly so, that Christ's death on the cross is for the forgiveness of sins. Right. And that's the center, but oftentimes we don't go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yes, it is for the forgiveness of sins. This is the center of the new covenant, but the new covenant is changing things immensely. Mm. Right? So no longer are the people of God gathering in one place, at one mountain in Jerusalem, but rather the whole earth now is going to receive the gospel message as the Spirit is going forward. So there are just radical things taking place here. So... I do think that in verses 1 through 30, mm-hmm. um, or maybe verse 32, he's really focusing on his disciples. Right. right. He's speaking to them to prepare them for the things that are about to take place. And so these trials and tribulations are the things that are going to happen as Jesus is going to be arrested. Right. As he's going to be nailed to the cross as the Son of God. Mm-hmm. The whole world is going to turn against him. And when that happens, Matthew tells us, the earth is going to shake. Right. Right. The darkness of the heavens are going to come. Like these are apocalyptic events. Right. So when we read in verse 30, I think this is really instructive for us. He says this kind of at the, the close of what he's saying here. Truly I say to you, he's speaking to his disciples there, uh, and not all of them, just a handful of them. Mm-hmm. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right. And we say, okay, if we take that at its most literal sense, like this generation, like the people who are here today right. are going to see these things. Now, sometimes we want to take in different, like generation, like, well, that means that the ages that are to come or these mm-hmm. people who are, you know, the believers. Or it's, like, it's like these things are, are about ready to happen, mm-hmm. right? Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So now he's focusing on his own words here and the things that he has said. What has he said? One of the things that he said is he's going to be arrested Mm-hmm. crucified and raised on the third day. That's right. Right? He also is talking about heaven and earth will pass away. Like, there's going to be changes that are taking place in the relationship between heaven and earth. So in our Hebrews Bible study, we've talked about this. Mm-hmm. Right? That whereas before, there's one man on one day of the year, the high priest who's able to enter into the Holy of Holies, which is literally heaven on earth. Right. And now, we the people of God, because of what Christ is going to do, all of us are given a priestly um, access into the holy places, into the heavenly places, by means of prayer and by means of coming through Jesus Christ. So there are radical things that are taking place here. And I think Matthew 13, or Mark 13, is preparing us for that. Right. I think a shift takes place in verse 32, mm-hmm. where we have this contrast where he says, but concerning that day, Right? So he's talking about these things that are in preparation for the cross and his resurrection. But in that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I think at that moment, he is fast-forwarding to the events that will come at the end of the age. Right. And it's important for us to remember there that when he says that the Son doesn't know these things, he knows these things in his divine nature. Right. But in his human nature... He doesn't know these things, mm. right? But now in his human nature, because he's been raised to the right hand of the Father, yeah. right? Well, he knows when these things are going to be taking place right. and when we're going to have, you know, uh, heaven and earth, heaven brought to earth, right? Mm-hmm. When the end of the ages uh, are culminated. So one question that just may come from these verses, like, well, what about Matthew or Mark 14 versus or Mark 13 
So what about Mark 13, 24 through 27, right? But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Typically, that's read as something coming at the very end of the age. And certainly that, that imagery is, is very strange to us. Right, yeah. Yet we see that darkness is going to come on the cross. Mm -hmm. We see that the earth will be shaken in Matthew 27, speaking about the cross, right? Stars falling from heaven. I take it that when Christ went onto the cross and died and then went to heaven, like he's purifying the place where unclean spirits used to be able to come, mm. right? We know that uh, Satan and his unclean spirits were in the presence of God, right? A lying spirit was sent out uh, to do the purposes of God in 1 Kings 22. I have to keep reading that to, to see what that says. But we see that there is a way in which unclean spirits were able to come into the presence of God in heaven. Mm -hmm. But when Christ is raised from the dead and he goes and sits at the right hand of the Father, he purifies heaven. He throws mm. down those angelic spirits and now they're raging war on the earth but they no longer have authority and power in the heavens. Wow. Right? And so that's one of the things that we see taking place in the cross. And then verse 26, where it says, They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that's coming from Daniel 7. Which, if we are to read Daniel 7 in context, it speaks about these clouds. What's that? I think the best way to read that are the clouds that are associated with the sacrificial offering on the Day of Atonement. Right When the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he has put um, an offering on the altar of incense, mm -hmm. and there are clouds that are now filling the Holy of Holies, that he's coming into the presence of God on the clouds or in the clouds. And so Leviticus 16 uses the language of clouds that are being spoken there. Mm -hmm. So it's really dense to kind of put Leviticus 16 with Daniel 7 with what Jesus is doing, but I think that's the best way to read that. Mm -hmm. And we can see, perhaps, why these events of the Son of Man coming in the clouds is related to the Day of Atonement and is going to happen in this generation because of what we see in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 62, where it says, again, the language of the Son of Man, when Jesus is brought before the high priest, Jesus says in Mark 14, 62, I am. So the question is, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The priest will see it. Not like it'll happen, but like the one yeah. who's in front of him, he will see these things. We take that in its most literal sense. Yeah, the priest is going to see the end of the temple as mm -hmm. the temple veil is torn, and the coming of this one who will be on the cross and lifted to heaven mm -hmm. and then made a sacrifice so that he will become the offering on the Day of Atonement and he will actually then be the beginning of a new temple and a new people through which he does on the cross, right? And that language of seed at the right hand of power is clearly now fulfilled from Christ at the right hand of the Father today, wow. right? Or actually on the day of his exaltation. So there's a lot more to be said. That's why I'm trying to write some of these things out. Mm -hmm. But I think what Mark 13 is doing is preparing for the cross so that we understand some of its apocalyptic events at that time. Mm -hmm. In Mark 14, verse 22, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper. What is the significance of continuing the Lord's Supper for today's believers? 
Yes, a number of things. I mean, Jesus speaks to the fact that we are to remember his death until he comes, right? And of course, again, his death is the means by which our sins are forgiven. Right. Uh, so his, the, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and the cup uh, represents the blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, the definition of our relationship with him. Right, so we're remembering these things. Mm. Woe to us if we forget these things. Yeah. Right. Uh, it also is a participation in the kingdom that is here and yet has not been fully consummated yet. Right. So in the death and resurrection, this new covenant age has come. The last days have come, uh, and yet we're still waiting the day when He will come again. So it's a reminder to us to hold fast to our faith and what Christ has accomplished. He's been raised from the dead, and He's now. Um, uh, preparing the way for mm-hmm. us to come and enter into his kingdom. And we, his kingdom people, are looking for a day in the future when he will come again. Mm. And this meal is what defines us, right? So it's not the food of this age or anything else that is defining us. It is this meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it reminds us of, of who we are. Um, you know, in so many ways, uh, you know, this is the goal of worship. Right? And this is why many churches will actually have the Lord's Supper at every meal because it's a reminder like how we move in the text of Scripture to Christ, to His death, to His resurrection. Like There's a way that every part of the Bible is, is related to that. Right. Right? And so, yeah, you can kind of ritualize the Lord's Supper and not be thinking about these things. But if everything in the Bible is leading to this new covenant promise, mm-hmm. and if we're a people of the new covenant, and our relationship with God is defined by the forgiveness of sins offered up by Christ, then like this is a meal that we should be thinking of and reminding ourselves of. And certainly, whenever we read the Bible, we're thinking, how does this relate to Jesus? Right? How does this lead us to faith in the one who gave himself for us? And not only died, but rose again mm-hmm. and is coming again to prepare us for that. And so we take that meal to remind ourselves of who Christ is, what he has done. Uh, and really, that's the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Wow. Let's take a look at Mark 15, 7 through 11. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he has perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So what is the takeaway from these verses where the crowd voted to let the criminal Barabbas go and to sentence Christ to crucifixion? Yeah, so I think it's just a living picture of the righteous being offered up for the unrighteous Mm. right so this man who is notoriously wicked Mm -hmm. and even a rebel against the state there uh, is set free Mm -hmm. because of Jesus who is innocent one of the emphases that we see in multiple ways is to speak of the innocence of Christ here right so he is declared to be righteous there's nothing that I find in this man worthy of punishment and yet he's punished anyways Right, right so the testimony of the Gospels are including the fact of how uh, Jesus is not dying for his own sin, his own transgression, but for the transgressions of others, and that we see the efficacy, the effectiveness of his death to set someone else free. So, in so many ways, um, it's like First Peter uh, chapter 3, which describes the cross of Christ in this way, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So that verse 
the righteous for the unrighteous, mm -hmm. right? That's Peter's language. Mark is actually Peter's gospel, mm. right? The apostolic authority that stands behind Mark's gospel is Peter, right. right? Peter had that relationship with Mark. And so in so many ways, it's like, I think this is illustrating the kind of theology, the kind of gospel message that Peter would have proclaimed. Christ the righteous died for or in the place of the unrighteous. And it's included here to say, we are the Barabbas, right? Not to allegorize it, but to say, Christ's cross set free the one deserving of penalty. And because of my sin, I deserve penalty. Right. I deserve to be crucified, to be executed. Yet because he took my place, I have been set free. And now I want to walk with him. We don't have that. We don't know what happened to Barabbas after that. Yeah. But certainly the application to us is, is that we could all hang the title above our head as Barabbas. Mm. Uh, Christ died in our place for us, and he brings us to the Father in this way. Wow, amen. This concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of today's podcast. As you follow along with your daily reading, if you come up with any questions that you would like me to ask David, Church please send them to Emmaus at obc.org. May hear responses in an upcoming episode. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.